0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star and Irish Mirror's crime podcast. I'm your host, Paul Healy. I'm crime correspondent for both papers. And today I'm joined, as ever, by Michael O'Toole, our Crime and Defence Editor. This is our Week in Crime edition, and we have a packed episode. We're discussing a bombshell new interview with mob boss John Gilligan, the latest around state witness Jonathan Dowdall, of course, and the harrowing tragedies on our roads over the past couple of days. So hello Mick, how are you doing?
1: Hello Paul, and we're doing this pod face to face, which is a rarity.
0: Highly unusual episode today, yes. Our listeners might not be fully aware, thanks to the the wonderful magic of our producer, Kieran Bradley, that we very rarely get to do do these interviews in person, and it's a thrill to do them in person. Uh, But the demands of our jobs means we're often on the road or we're working from home or whatever circumstances. So we're usually joined over video call and it's put together in the magic of the studio. Um, but today we're sitting in our office in Talbot Street and it's very very strange in one sense because it's completely empty.
1: <laughs> and, and the good news is you're within punchable range. so I think, <laughs> I think it's great.
0: Yeah um, but uh, no it's great to do these things in, in person mm-hmm. um, and we, we hope you know it'll be a sign of things to come maybe in the future we might be able to do more of these interviews in person. But we've uh, as I said uh, in the intro we've a packed episode this week we've got a lot to discuss um, and and I want to kick things off really with a, as I said, a bombshell interview today with John Gilligan. And um, uh, Mick, you were across this. You 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 got wind that this was happening, and uh, the the first details of it had come out today.
1: Yes. So I mentioned in the last week in crime we did that I was working on a project that I couldn't really go into, and this was it. So I've been. Uh, working on the, the serialization rights of Jason O'Toole's uh, investigative journalist has done a series of taped interviews with John Gilligan over in his home in Spain. So they're called the Gilligan tapes. And uh, so I read every asp, every inch, every word that Gilligan said in those books, in that book, and we're doing a serialization in the Star and the Mirror, and the Sunday Mirror in the coming days. So the first uh, element. Is out today. There's more to come, as I say, in the coming days. Um, it's hard to what what they make of it because Gilligan is an inveterate liar. And when I was reading the book, I was taking notes and I was going, "Jesus Christ, how many times can a man claim to have outsmarted the guardie? I mean, there's I won't spoil it for people who buy the book, and I would recommend it. it's a really really good book. But there's one uh, part in the in passage in the book where he talks about how he used his wedding ring to outsmart Gardy, He polished it and could see Gardy He used it as a mirror. Fantastical stuff. So I, I did speak to Jason O'Toole about this, and you know, any journalist worth his or her salt would have wanted these interviews. He would have wanted to interview John Gilligan. But then it gets difficult, and Jason mentions this in the book, you have to fact check him. But you have to let him speak as well. Mm. The man is a complete liar. So the the difficulty for Jason and I, I personally think he did it very well. He interjected, interjected a few times, but he he couldn't interject every second because that would ruin the narrative and he would get Gilligan's backs up, back up. And what is the important thing is to get the stuff out of Gilligan. So I, I think he did a really, really good job under very, very difficult and trying circumstances. But the the, the stuff today was that Gilligan boasted that he earned more than 10 million pounds, 12.7 million euro from importing cannabis into Ireland in the 1990s.
0: But that, you might tell me, because obviously you have more experience with John Gilligan and the history of John Gilligan, but that to me shocked me that he was on the record effectively admitting that, look, he was a major supplier of drugs and he has no shame about that.
1: None, none whatsoever. And, you know, very interestingly in the book, he differentiates between what he calls Class A drugs. Class A drugs don't exist in Ireland. They're just drugs. They're they called Class A in Britain and in the North. But he differentiates between cannabis and heroin and cocaine. De- definitely heroin. He seems to be quite anti heroin, And he sort of, you know, he drew a big differentiation between those two drugs. Now, you know, he made millions... I remember at the time when he was convicted, we sort of, we speculated that he made millions, but this is the first time, obviously, you know, he was he pleaded not guilty, but he was convicted and he got 28 years, reduced to 20 on appeal. It was a very, very big sentence. So he has, for the first time, admitted that he was doing it and he has said how much money he got, but he also said that he got millions and he didn't go into Specific details. He got millions from smuggling cigarettes wow. in the nineties, and one of the things he said about that was he quickly realised that, you know, if you smuggle drugs, you get jailed; if you smuggle cigarettes, you get a fine. And then he, he boasts about how his brilliance led and the and the, the, the government to change the law. So he, he really has up his own derriere, shall we say? But it, it's it's a fascinating insight and a fascinating glimpse behind this stony face. You, you may, may remember we doorstep Gilligan in Spain. 2021, didn't talk. And he always has that persona. I mean, I interviewed him when he got out of prison and he mentions it in the book. I was the unnamed journalist he spoke to. I doorstep him at his brother Thomas's house. Mm. Um, so he's always had this exterior. So this is the first glimpse behind the curtain. Now look, he's putting his best foot forward. Absolutely. He comes out with some outrageous stuff that we didn't mention in any of our serializations in the SARS, Some really disgusting things about Vernon McGeer, which I won't go into. But it's a worthy journalistic exercise because it lifts the curtain on him.
0: It does, and it gives you an insight into his thinking, and I can't wait to to actually see him in the documentary comes out on Virgin Media uh, on Monday. Um, but yeah, it's important, as you said, to contextualise and, and fact-check him, and I know that you did that in, in the piece today in the Irish Mirror and the Star, but um, I thought it was fascinating to hear him speak about Uh, the infamous encounter that he had with Veronica Geeran where she doorsteps him at his home in Jessbrook there and he assaulted her. Everybody knows that he assaulted her, um, but he gave a very different account of that.
1: He did. um, And, you know, when you're doing an extract like this and there's an editorial committee, I mean, there's the editors and everything, and we just took a decision. There were elements of that that we didn't want. He was clearly lying. um, But he did say, you know, he denied it. And I, in our fact-checking piece, there was significant evidence that he did, including her own bruises, but also a senior counsel, uh, later on, there was a, a threat by Gilligan to uh, rape Veronica's young son and to kill Veronica. And he denied that, said it didn't happen, said I would never do anything like that. Anybody who says that to a child or a woman is filth. A senior counsel overheard that conversation. Mm and give evidence to that effect. So, you know, there is evidence to contradict everything Gilligan says. But there's no doubt. He is a chancer and he is putting his best foot forward, but uh, he's a a piece of work.
0: So he claims in this interview that uh, Veronica, and these are his claims, they're not backed up by any evidence, but he says that she stuck her foot in the door and then that she came in and that he grabbed her and pushed her out and said, get out, basically. Um, but she was black and blue and she was very seriously injured from that.
1: Yeah, and, and, and this, is, this is the difficult part because he makes horrific allegations about that, we, about the, the bruises. We didn't go into it. Um, it's in the book. It is what it is. But I think anybody who reads that will be disgusted yeah. by what he says. So we don't really need anyone. Why it. do
0: you think that at this stage in his life that John Gilligan is speaking and also trying to rewrite certain history?
1: I think his reputation is important too, um, and he does mention crime reporters and, you know, there have been, I'd say it's safe to say, there have been thousands of stories about Gilligan when he was active, before he was charged over the murder of Monica Aguirre and later acquitted. He was unnamed, but then he was named when he said he was a suspect, and then he went on trial and there have been loads of stories about him. But it's very rare that he gives his point of view, and I think is he thinking? To, he said he's 70, he talks about how, he's, how, you know, he's obviously closer to death than somebody in his 30s or 40s. And I think just reading the book, I did get a sense that he wanted to leave everything on the pitch. He didn't want to, you know, his 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 truth or his version to go on set.
0: Fascinating. And then the other thing that kind of came out from this interview, which was interesting, <clears throat> is an acknowledgement of sorts that his gang is responsible for the murder of Veronica Guerin, although he takes all responsibility away from himself, and we we know that it, you know it, it's it's common knowledge that he is the man who is alleged to have made that order uh, he denies that and he claims that someone else is responsible
1: yes, so uh, there was a man called John the coach trainer who would, who would be a, a, a quite a notorious criminal in the 1990s and he hooked up with gilligan he was part of he was his sort of consigliere and part of his gang, so he is alleging that Veronica Gearn was murdered on the orders of Traynor who was part of Gilligan's gang because Veronica was going to do a story about Trainer being involved in heroin dealing and he, he couldn't let that happen. So his allegation or his claim is that Trainer ordered it. Brian Meehan, whom we know is in custody, uh, uh, being the only person convicted of the murder, he was the getaway driver on the motorbike. He alleges he says he was definitely the, the getaway driver. And then he says a man called Charlie Bowden was the gunman. Now, Charlie Bowden was part of the Gilligan gang, but he turned state witness against Gilligan, gave evidence in him against him in his 2000-2001 murder trial. The, the Special Criminal Court disregarded that evidence and acquitted Gilligan. Bowden is now overseas in the Witness Security Programme. And I suppose, and what Gilligan is, uh, Bowden is away. Gilligan is claiming that Bowden was the trigger man. No evidence to that. No evidence was ever put to that effect in court. He was never charged over anything like that. so it, that can be fact checked. And it's easy for Gilligan to say that because. Bowden is overseas under a new event identity in the uh, witness security program, so Gilligan can effectively say what he wants. He can say what he wants about Trainer, Trainer is dead. Mm. He can say what he wants about Meehan, Meehan is guilty of the murder. He's in prison, so you know he's very much punching down. And Gardy would completely disregard what he says about Bowden being the gunman.
0: Well, I was just going to say that it is interesting, of course, that he he finger. Fingers basically people who can't defend themselves. So Charlie Bowden is obviously not going to come out and talk. He's in witness protection, got a new life for himself. And then uh, you know the other person's dead. Uh, so you know it's it's quite telling that he would uh, point a finger at people who cannot fight back, so to speak, and give their version of events. Um, but also another thing that I found fascinating was that that it was brought up to him that. The, the, the double jeopardy thing that if at this stage he even came out and admitted his own involvement that he couldn't be done for it and and he goes a step further and he says I, I could even have been on the bike mm-hmm. and I just thought that was quite disgusting for him to say
1: well he, he couldn't have been on the bike because we know he was in I think it was Amsterdam on the day of the murder yeah. and there was evidence to that effect so he couldn't have been on the bike that's a physical impossibility and even during the trial it was stated that he was overseas and that he wasn't you know, centrally involved in the murder. The allegation was that it was common cause and that he was behind it. So he couldn't have. But yes, I, you know, and, and he is true. Uh, double jeopardy means he can't be, be recharged. So he could walk down Coburn Street tomorrow and says, I did it. And he can't be charged. Now, that law has been changed. But as you know, Paul, all criminal laws can't be retrospective. So he's done and dusted. So he killing in his... Home and host. he can do what he wants, he can, as I say, he can admit it and there's nothing anybody can do. But I, I just got the sense reading that bit that he was acting the bollocks a wee bit, basically, and he was sort of playing with words and, you know, habitically. I can't, I haven't heard the interviews yet, but I just read every word in the book. And I, I just got that sense that he was being a wee bit pious.
0: Well, it's fascinating, I and mean, this, this is only the half of it. There's more to come out over the coming days, and that documentary airs on Monday what else can you talk about at this stage that's not embargoed, shall we say?
1: I, I, I can't really, but there he, there are plenty of things that he talks about. Um, I think tomorrow and Saturday's Mirror and Star, you may remember he was released from prison in October 2013. In December 2013 a man who I believe to be a, a Kenyan cartel gunman went into a pub in Dublin shot with a gun shouting, where's Gilligan, where's Gilligan? He had the wrong pub, Gilligan was in another pub. And then in March 2014, Gilligan was shot in a house, his brother Thomas's house, in Clondalkin, in West Dublin. And um, without breaking any embargoes, he talks about that and he is very frank about that and it's one of the more interesting aspects of the book.
0: So does he basically acknowledge in these interviews, or he seems to anyway, for the first time that he was a major gangster. And yes. He's saying that on the record. Yes,
1: he, he admits he was a criminal. He says he's been involved in criminality for I think he said fifty years. He did start in criminality as a teenager. So he admits that. And he and he would talk about um saying that crime doesn't pay.
0: Mm. He
1: maybe I don't know, I, I, I look, I thought he was being Jesuitical, I have to say, and making it, to make it, but it's all about, crime doesn't pay, and he was advising young people not to get involved in it, and it, you know there were factors that drove him to it, but yes, I mean, that was one interesting aspect of the book, he does talk about that.
0: And the other thing he says is, he's going to hell.
1: Yeah, and he says, I'm going to hell, and then the next sentence he says, oh, I don't know if it exists, it probably doesn't, but I probably am going to hell. So he's a wee bit all over the place. Now, this is the beauty of this interview format, it was question and answer session. Mm. So you can see, I'm sure it was edited a bit, but it was largely not edited. So you see the, Jason's question, Gilligan's answer. I, I, I normally don't like Q&A in a book or an interview. It totally works on this occasion. Right. Because you can see the unvarnished
0: Gilligan. The context to the whole thing. Mm. I, I can't wait to, to see the whole thing. Um, and it's good that, that it's being fact-checked as well, live. Mm. You know. Um, It's important for us journalists to do that. You've done that today. I'm sure you've done it again tomorrow.
1: And just to make the point, credit to Jason, because I think he's going to get hockeyed for letting Gilligan speak. He had to let Gilligan speak. There are passages in the book when he does challenge him. But with such a liar like Gilligan, you you have to get Gilligan's story. So there's a flow and a narrative. Say if you and I are talking and I interrupt you every second, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So Jason had a very difficult balancing act there, and I thought he did it very well.
0: Well, yeah, can't wait to see more of it and to to read Jason's book. We have other topics to discuss. Uh, Believe it or not, we've got more on Jonathan Dowdall to discuss. Um, It seems that the the wheels are moving in terms of certain elements. There's two things we want to talk about. The first thing we want to talk about is the security that is surrounding now Jonathan Dowdall's family. Um, So we had a story in the Star there earlier this week. In relation to Garda policing a home there on the Navan Road, everyone knows the address. It has been publicised uh, in the Regency trial. It's 270 Avon Road. That's Jonathan Dowdall's home, and our information was that the family are back there. And as a result of that, there is a permanent, or almost essentially a permanent Garda presence there, um, and you had some information, Mick, in relation to what kind of guard presence is there.
1: Yes, so if we think of Patsy Hutch, we know that there was what they call a the community reassurance beat or a post on the street where Patsy Hutch lives in central Dublin. And it has been there since the feud started, really, I suppose, since Patsy's brother, Eddie, was murdered a few days after the Regency in <clears throat> 2016. So a few, mo- few weeks ago, we revealed that that had been lifted, but that was an unarmed presence. That was uniformed guards, f- from the North Central Division, sitting in a marked guard car. The protection post, and it is 24 hours, I believe, for the Dowdall House in Cabra, is of a totally different kettle of fish. It's armed detectives with pistols and MP7 submachine guns. They're from the Special Detective Unit and, I believe, the Emergency Response Unit. And that tells me one thing. They believe there's a critical or substantial threat to that man. So we found out about this it's hard to hide it when people are driving past and you, you can see a, a guard car there. So we found out about this and it got us thinking, why, why are they there? Jonathan Dowdell, as you know, is in custody, serving four years for facilitating the murder of David Byrne. His father, Patrick, got two years after admitting the same offence during the trial, before the trial of Hutch who was acquitted. But he's out and he's been out since, I think it's the end of April, isn't it? Yes. Right. So uh, we know that... Jonathan Doddall and by extension members of his family. Dowdall was being assessed for the witness security programme, witness protection, as you and I would call it. But that was that came out, I think, late last year, wasn't it? December, something like that.
0: That he was being assessed yeah. for it. Um, we heard that at the at at the beginning of the trial, really. October. Uh, October time. Yeah. October time last year. Uh, and yet. So it's, it, it just,
1: it's it's nearly a year. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're nearly into October. So I was making inquiries. And by the way, it's extremely difficult to get information about the witness security program or anything around that. It's very, very tight But we did establish that there's a major problem for, for Dowdall. Obviously, with the witness security program, you go abroad and a country accepts you. Mm-hmm. It could be France, it could be Italy, it could be America, Australia, whatever. But the law enforcement there have to say, yep. Yeah, bring him or her in, no problem, we'll sort him out or her out. Problem is, nobody is willing to accept the at the moment, and the guards are having serious difficulties because, now obviously we know that he pleaded guilty to facilitating a murder. Before that, he pleaded he was convicted of waterboarding a man, which is a very, very serious crime, and he got a prison sentence for that. But more than anything, it's his associations with dissident Republicans, members of the real IRA. Paul, you can talk about this in the trial, but... The fact that he was associating with terrorists is a big no-no mm. for international police forces so that's a major difficulty for him on the guards
0: yeah and he was pretty open during the trial as well under cross-examination about his association with various terrorist groups and his connect although he did try to downplay it but brandon grehan as a senior counsel for mr hutch at the time really grilled him on that between his connections with you know uh guarda killer pierce mccauley um with uh, real IRA members like Alan Ryan, uh, and then he was facilitating meetings uh, with very uh, senior Republican heads up north in Strabane uh, b- between Gerry Hutch and these individuals to, uh, as he put it, uh, bring about a peace in the Kinna Hutch feud. He clearly knew some very senior uh, members of, of terrorist organisations. Um, he would try to downplay that and say that he just knew these people, you know, in a friendly kind of a sense, not through any nefarious means, but his convictions speak for himself. I mean, when he waterboarded um, Alex Hurley in his home, uh, he he claimed that he was in the IRA and that he would have uh, him killed and fed to dogs. So that's the kind of individual you're dealing with here. And uh, it's probably no surprise when we think about it that many countries are not not wanting to have to deal with uh, putting up with someone like that.
1: And do you remember, just remember on the pod, I'm sort of kicking myself. Do you remember last year I said to you on the pod, Jesus, you know, I think it's going to be very hard. I I, I predicted that he wouldn't get on the Witness Protection Security Programme. I said it's going to be very hard for him because mm. I was told it was going to be very hard for him. And then other media reports said he'd been accepted on it. So I said, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. I, I think my source is right on that. I think he, that person did predict it would be very difficult for uh to be ex- to, to, to get on the program to start a new life abroad and i, I think that person has been vindicated
0: yeah and, and i mean to me it's interesting because this you could tell me if i'm wrong but i'm just reading between the lines here in that your sources are telling you that they're having difficulty having him accepted by other countries that to me says that they are at least trying to enter him into the witness protection program so he actually should be accepted into it, but he may be rejected it, not because the guards don't want to give it to him, but because literally no country will take him.
1: He may have been accepted, you're right, he may have been accepted into it, but the problem is the the, the end delivery, the end nation. Yeah. That might, the guards may have said, yeah, no problem, we'll do this, but the guards don't put him away. You know, It's not a guard hmm. job to set him up in a new life abroad, it's, it's the other country, the host country, has to welcome him, and they're obviously serious stumbling blocks about
0: that. Yeah, and, and just as it happens, actually, before recording this podcast, I was reviewing some of the evidence from the trial for other reasons. And um, there was actually a senior member of Gardaí Giacana who couldn't be identified, who gave evidence right before Daudol, uh took to the stand, uh, gave evidence about the witness security program and how it works and how a person is accepted into it. And that, Garda said on the stand that no matter what Dowdall said, in the trial or even the outcome of it, it would have no bearing on whether he would or wouldn't be accepted to the program. So people might kind of think, oh, because it didn't go the state's way, he's not going to be accepted. They said in ev- they've said in evidence, they've said uh, under oath that no matter the trial, it has no bearing on whether they accept him or not.
1: So that's there's sort of the best analogy we can do is there's the theory And then there's the reality, the practical aspect. The practical aspect is, where is this fellow going to go and live? And that's the problem. Mm.
0: It's fascinating. Uh, Another thing I was just trying to work out, because he's got four years, right? So he was convicted there in October. So we're coming up to him almost a year now in prison doing the maths. Probably going to do about two and a half to maybe less than two and a half years in prison. So he's maybe got another year and a half to go before he's released if something doesn't happen in the meantime, and we've done stories before that if he's accepted into the program, uh, the guards can come in uh, and take him and the prison service won't stand in their way and they will grant him what's called temporary release and he'll just be walking out of there. But, you know, he recently lost his appeal. He's only got about a year or so in in there left and he's a free man. I was going to say we'll probably never hear from him again, but I don't know if that's in his personality. <laughs>
1: Maybe it will be ironed out maybe the guards look the guards have good relationships with law enforcement all over the world i mean you and i know about various meetings in america and that sort of thing so you know maybe it will be be sorted out but I, I, it is a problem
0: massive and um, we'll be talking about them i'm sure for many more podcasts and um, the last thing we just want to acknowledge this is the week in crime, but uh, we spent—I've well, myself particularly uh, you as well, Mick. But I, I've spent the last couple of days covering some really horrendous tragedies in this country, and I think we should acknowledge them. Uh, they're not crimes, uh, but they are something that affects us all, which is tragedies on our roads, uh, road traffic collisions. Um there have been twelve people killed in the last eleven days on our roads. A uh, hundred and. 26 people killed so far this year. That's nearly 40 more people than this time last year. Um, so, something's happening on our roads. Uh, the statistics speak for themselves, and the guards have really come out in force in the last couple of days. This press conference um, happening today as well, where they're trying to highlight safety on the roads because clearly, you know, look, sometimes these things are freakish and they happen out of nowhere, but those stats show a, a huge increase uh, of fatalities on our roads. so i just want to mention the most recent ones obviously on the 31st of july there friends uh kia mccann and Dalava Mohammed, young girls on their way to their debs uh, they were killed in a crash there in Clonus. and then in clonmel just last friday uh, luke mcsweeney uh, his sister grace mcsweeney zoe Coffey, nicole murphy uh, all they were all 18 years old luke was 24 Uh, They were celebrating their leaving cert results there last Friday, and they were on their way out, and this terrible crash happened there in Clonmel. And then, again, uh, as people might be aware, just on Tuesday, uh, a crash there in the Cashel area, and Tom and Bridget O'Reilly and their grandson, Tom Jr., uh, all died uh, in another horrific crash there. I've covered all three of them, tragedies, and, and I have to say, while we report on crimes every day, there's something about road tragedies that's just, it's so hard to cover. It's just really, really sad. And yesterday I was at um, one of the funerals, I was at uh, Nicole Murphy's funeral there, and I was just, it was just very hard, very, very sad. Um, there were hundreds of people lying in the streets, there was a guard of honor there from her classmates, and uh, I mean you couldn't get into the church that was so busy and we were standing outside and you know uh, just to give people an idea of how sad these occasions are I there were plenty of guards there to help out thankfully but there were a lot of young people that were o- so overcome with emotions that they had to be taken out of the crowd uh, and some of them out of the church because um, they were feeling faint and they were you know given kind of medical attention and that happened at least five times to my eye um, because they're just in such shock that they lost their friends, you know, that one minute they were there and the next second they were gone. We talked about the statistics here at the start of the episode, um, but you know, and you can talk to this as well, Mick, like we've just named all these people and, and thankfully the guards, you know, have really come around on this as well, in that they see the importance in going to the families and asking them, do you want your loved ones remembered and issue a photograph of them? And that's where our job comes in. We have these people remembered beyond statistics
1: and uh, was it 162 126? 126 126 126 in, in all of Ireland there have been 26 homicides this year 21 of them are in the republic right so that's more than there, six times uh, more people down the roads than down homicides I, it's, it's it's extremely difficult I mean we've spoken about this in the pod before I difficult I find covering Wrote well, fatalities because of the random nature of it, but I know you were at the, the funeral. I was at the vigil for the four young people in Clonmel on Sunday. Very sad. There were about three thousand people there, and I'm just going to mention one thing. It, it, it was remarkable. Everybody was very respectful, very quiet. There were songs and hymns, and there were some great speakers, and everybody was holding it together until the end when a, a song called "Rise Up" came mm. on, and that's when it got to people, and it, it was remarkable. It was horrendous. Everywhere I looked, people were breaking down, tears. It just got to everybody, and there were people wailing, crying, but wailing with emotion, and just it got to them. So that song unleashed things, and uh, yeah. it's just terrible. It is just really bad.
0: Yeah, and I just want to mention that in the and there are two funerals happening today as we speak. Um, but in Nicole Murphy's funeral. At the very end, her mother, Serena, spoke um, very powerfully. Um, And I just think it kind of, you know, it really sums up the human life, I suppose, that's been lost in this. I mean, this girl had her whole future ahead of her. She got 531 points in her leaving cert. She wanted to go on and study midwifery. midwifery. I'm going to mispronounce that. She wanted to be a midwife and then go on to do radiology. And, uh, yeah, bright future ahead of her. And her mother said that her dreams were taken away from her. Um, yeah and then there was a vigil service uh, for the O'Reilly family and the the priest there said just you know words fail and when words fail they they turn to scripture Uh, and you know they're a very religious uh, family and it was a very 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 sombre service there Um, I think just you know the guards as I said they're coming out and raising awareness about this and Superintendent Liam Geraghty of the Garda press office there he gave a briefing uh, yesterday and spoke about you know uh, so he wanted to highlight the fact that there are dangers on the road and he, he released those statistics to us and just you know he was trying to caution people that um, to, to, to think twice when they drive their car saying that the guards are seeing more and more incidents of people on their phones when they drive in particular and that I think over a third of the recent fatalities are all young people under the age of 25 so there's something happening there with young people and f- mobile phones. And not, not necessarily saying that it has anything to do with the recent cases, but there is a phenomenon happening. And, and even anecdotally, like I was only just saying this to you earlier, Mick, that like there just seems to be a lot of people speeding on the roads in particular. And again, not saying that it had anything to do with the recent cases, but um, something ha- has obviously changed in terms of people's driving <laughs> And their attention skills, uh, you know, that, that's causing a lot. And then something else that Liam Garrity highlighted is, whilst fatalities are reported on, there are hundreds and hundreds more people seriously injured for life uh, who have lived, but there, it's happening every single day.
1: It, there's, it, there's not much to say. It is so unbearably sad. And uh, look, What can you say? I don't know how those families will cope.
0: Yeah, it's very hard. And look, I hope that we're not having to talk about more of these in the coming weeks. Um, just they seem to have come one after the other uh, for whatever reason. As I said, we're n- they're not crimes and each of those circumstances are all different. Um, and, and just to mention that Tom O'Reilly's parents were in the front of the vehicle and that they were injured. Uh, and, but I'm told that they are recovering and hopefully they make a full recovery um, and so you know, our thoughts are with, with the families. So listen, thanks very much for listening to us. Uh, We really enjoy doing it in person, although it's very warm in this room, I will say. (laughs) Um, But uh, we appreciate you listening and we'll have an episode. We'll be back hopefully on Monday. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you.